The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Take your copy, God's Word, and open with me uh, to the book of Exodus. Exodus this morning in chapter 10 is where we'll be. We're willing, we're going to walk through these first 20 verses uh, of Exodus as we look at uh, the next plague that is sent upon Pharaoh and Egypt. Uh, I wish that I could, you know, have some kind of creative rebuttal to Greg's comment about my golfing, but the reality is it's true. I mean, it's, I just have to humble myself and admit, you know, I thought, well, I could throw the scorecard up there, but that would just prove his case. So, um, but uh, we do want you to sign up. We, we, uh, we, we believe in taking the gospel where the gospel is not currently known and that uh, whether be that Toronto or Peru or Kentucky or somewhere else in the world, not that, not that there's not pockets of the gospel in those places, but there is great darkness there. Uh, in Toronto, Canada, there's one church preaching the gospel for every 124,000 people. Um, here in South Carolina, there's one for every 6,500 people. Uh, and so there, there's a whole lot more opportunity to hear the gospel here than there is there. And so we do these things like the golf tournament and, and ask you to give, give all through the year to, to missions because we believe that the gospel is the only answer that will ever satisfy the soul and fix what's wrong in the world. We complain about uh, all the wickedness that we see around us, but the reality is government, government can do nothing about it. Uh, education can do nothing about it. The gospel alone changes hearts. And that's why we preach and teach the gospel. And, and beyond that, God's worthy of the worship of every single human being who has ever lived or will ever live. And so we preach and teach and go to his glory. Amen? Amen. Well, let's look at this together. I've, I've titled this sermon this morning, Humility or Humiliation? Uh, the choice is Pharaoh's. It's humility or humiliation. And uh, I, before I kind of get into this, you're going to see that God today is going to give instructions to Pharaoh. He's going to say to Pharaoh, go or to, to Moses, he's going to give those instructions and say, go into Pharaoh for I have hardened his heart. We've heard this over and over again, but I want you to, to see and to realize that this, this is the worst bit of instruction that any preacher could ever hear. Go to a congregation that's not going to listen to a word you say. And this, is, this scares a preacher to death. And Moses is told here, go and speak and show, and he will not hear. He will not respond. Why would God do that? Because you're going to see in this, you're going to see all the way through, God is doing it, number one, to show all ten plagues that God has from the beginning decided that he would send ten plagues. He didn't, he didn't really make that up as he went along. He's not flying by the seat of, of his deified pants, if you will. He, is, he has planned all this out, uh, and, and he's going to send all ten plagues. And it should give us great encouragement to know that God's plans, whether it be his plans to bless and to not allow us to cross the finish line of our hellbound race, or whether it's his plans of judgment, his plans will not stop too early nor will they carry on too long, but it is exactly what is deemed right and wise in the mind of God. And it should give us great encouragement to know that. He's also going to send all 10 plagues, we're gonna read in these first couple of verses, so that the fathers 
would have a great story to tell to their own children. I want you to notice, I want you to take note of the fathers here and their role in discipling their children. And before I read the text, I just want to say to fathers in the room, what a great privilege you have. What a great privilege we have to model for our children dependence on the gospel, but also to be reading to them scripture so that, so that they know we read and we talk about and we pray and I'm guilty of not doing this with my own children the way I should, and we all will fall short. But I'm, I'm going to challenge you that we would, as fathers, step up and lead. Step up and lead our, our kids to see that there is no one like our God. This word here, before I read, I've gotten way ahead of myself, but let me just finish what I'm going to say, and then we'll look at the text. Uh, he says here, you'll see how I've dealt harshly with Pharaoh. The word is humiliated. That's where I get this title is God is going to humiliate Pharaoh. And the reason he does so is so that this story can be told over and over and over again throughout generation after generation after generation that there is no one like our God. We sit here today at the feet of our great, 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 great grandfather, if you will. We sit at the feet of Moses And what started with him telling his sons has made it all the way to us by the grace of God. So let's look at our text today. Exodus chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly, humiliated with the Egyptians. And what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country." They they shall cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land, and they shall eat what is left to you after the hail. And they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field, and they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day that they came on the earth to this day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. And Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go so that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go, serve the Lord your God. But which ones are going to go? Moses said, We will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and daughters and with our flocks and our herds, for, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. But he said to them, The Lord be with you if ever I let you and your little ones go. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, go, the men among you, and serve the Lord, for that is what you are asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. And the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land and all that the hell has left. So Moses stretched out his hand over the land of Egypt and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land, 
all that day and all that night, when it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt. Such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been before, nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened. And they ate all the plants in, in, the, in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord, your God, and against you. Now, therefore, forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord, your God, only to remove this death from me. So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord. And the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. I want you to know this morning, I'm going to make a first point, and then I'm going to make several points kind of coming out of that one. But this first one is this, God is looking for humility. This phrase here in verse 3, when, when the question is posed to Pharaoh, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me, points to the fact that it, it gives us the idea that if Pharaoh were at any moment, at, at the close of any of the plagues, or even at the beginning when warning was issued, if he would humble himself and surrender himself to the Lord and let the, the children of Israel go, then he would have been given and offered and received grace from God. Each time a plague came is another opportunity for Pharaoh to humble himself. We take this teaching not just from this one passage of the Bible, but other places in Scripture teach us. 1 Peter 5, 5 says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. We know God is hardening Pharaoh's heart, but he's also doing it in such a way in the mysterious power and will of God that Pharaoh will be held accountable. And Pharaoh here has the opportunity to humble himself. He's given this question, how long will you, humble, will you refuse to humble yourself before me? The Bible teaches that if we humble ourselves, that God gives grace. Romans ten thirteen says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If Pharaoh refuses to humble himself, God's going to have to do the humiliating for him. God's going to have to produce humility in Pharaoh. And I believe that you and I this morning should spend some time thinking on that same question, hearing it from God, not just to Pharaoh, but to you and I, where you sit this morning, where I stand this morning, that we should hear from God, how long will you Refuse to humble yourself before me. God's looking for humility. The opposite of humility is pride. Too often our pride gets in the way. Too often our pride gets us in trouble. Pride takes us further than we really want to go, doesn't it? You ever been approached with something, accused of something, in the middle of being rebuked by someone, and your pride wells up within you and get, you get defensive. What happens when your pride takes over? You begin to talk, and you just talk and talk and talk, and you say things that normally you wouldn't say, 
But your pride gets in the way, and before you know it, your words have gone further than you ever meant them to go. And you walk away from that conversation knowing that you have just done damage to that relationship, be it a child with a parent or a spouse to a spouse or whatever the case may be. Our our words will sometimes, because of our pride, take us further than we want to go. But not only that, our pride will also keep us from going where we really need to go. Sometimes we know that the right answer for us is to admit our guilt to admit, to admit our fault, but our pride wells up and just won't let us do it. It gets in the way. I want to spend the rest of our time this morning talking about this issue of pride. If God's looking for humility, more times than not, we don't respond with humility. We respond with pride. The tendency of our hearts is to respond with pride. So I want to just give you some true things about pride this morning. Number one is this. Pride leads to God's judgment. Pride leads to God's judgment. We see this not only in our text. We see this in other places in Scripture. The devil became the devil because he rose up in pride and believed that the worship of heaven should go as much to him as to God himself. In our text this morning, in verses 4 through 7, in verse 4 in particular, the, the threat is that if you refuse to humble yourself, God says, tomorrow, about this time, I will send locusts on your land. Locusts, uh, maybe you don't know what locusts are, or maybe you do. Locusts are really just big grasshoppers. Uh, they're, 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 they're not those that kind of stay by themselves, like we would be walking through a field or through a, uh, through a tobacco uh, field as, as uh, I grew up kind of working in those a little bit. And you see these big giant grasshoppers that are just kind of segregated, doing, doing their own work. Locusts, for whatever reason, travel in swarms. Locusts are these giant grasshoppers that can weigh as much as two grams a piece, and, and they eat their entire body weight in a day. Doesn't sound like a whole lot, doesn't sound very threatening, except for a full scale swarm covers several hundred square miles. But in a swarm, there are between 100 and 200 million locusts per mile. So, in a several hundred square mile swarm, you can imagine how many locusts are, are there can leave thousands of, of people in famine for years as it just strips, they just strip clean all the vegetation in a, in a, in a region. In the 1920s and 1930s, locusts swept across Africa and wiped out 5 million square miles. Locusts swept, uh, swept across there and, and, and took out that large area that is almost double the size of the United States. In 2001, the Times in London reported, that, uh, reported on locust swarms devastating crops from Central Asia to the American Midwest. In places, that the density they reported uh, of, of infestation reached 10,000 locusts per 10 square feet. And this is a devastating judgment of God. You think, what's the big deal? He sends giant grasshoppers. It's more than that. We were given this little detail in last week's text as we read about the hail. And we were given in verses 31 and 32 of chapter 9, this about the, 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 what's, what was destroyed, the flax and the barley, but that the wheat had not yet come up. And the little obscure detail is there given to us showing that what the, what the hail didn't get, the locusts would. 
I want you to see God's judgment. And, and I don't want to stretch this too far, but I want you to feel the weight of God's judgment on Pharaoh. But I also want you to feel the weight of what God's judgment can be in the life of anyone, even here today, at the end of August in 2015. God's judgment in this text is, first off, smothering. Verse 5, it says, they shall cover the land, the face of the land, so that no one can see the land. Can you imagine? Can you imagine not being able to take a step outside without stepping on locusts? Without hearing them crunch under your feet, you can't see the ground for, for, for walking on them. You can't really see through the air because they're swarmed so thickly. God's judgment sometimes can be smothering. God's judgment is devouring. In verse 5 also, it said, They shall eat what is left to you after the hail, and they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field. It just takes everything. What the hail doesn't get, the locusts will. There will be nothing left. This would cause famine and maybe even starvation for years to come. It's interesting that here this judgment for Pharaoh could be juxtaposed with when Joseph is taken down to Egypt in the beginning and has this dream and is able to prepare for this drought that is coming and able to feed the nations. The nations would come to Egypt to receive grain because of the provision of God then here all these years later is God destroying the very grain, the very crops, the very food in Egypt as a judgment on how they have treated God's people. God's judgment can be infiltrating. In verse 6, it says, they will fill your houses, the houses of your servants, all over the land of Egypt. They're going to they're be everywhere, just like we remember with the plague of frogs, that there was nowhere they could go. You remember with frogs, they, they couldn't They couldn't open the oven. They couldn't pull out a mixing bowl without a frog being there. The the picture was these frogs in in Pharaoh's clothing. He's pulled them off of himself, and now locusts will be all the more. There's nowhere you can go to get away from these locusts. God's judgment can be unprecedented. Nothing like this has ever happened before is verse 6. Not your fathers or your grandfathers. They've never seen anything like this. Nor will they ever see anything like this again. God's judgment can be ensnaring. Verse 7, Pharaoh's servants, they begin to turn on him, and they take great risk of, of their own life in confronting Pharaoh, but they finally had enough. They look around, and they see the ruin that is coming to Egypt, and they say to Pharaoh, How long? How long shall this man be a snare to us? Can you not see that Egypt is ruined? So often the, uh, the, the object of our rebellion, the thing that we cling to so tightly, becomes the very thing that snaps shut on us. Here Pharaoh holding the children of Israel captive, snaring them and will not let them go, finds that the very thing that he holds on to is the thing that becomes a snare to him. He gets caught in his own trap. When we refuse, here's what I want you to see out of this. When, when you and I refuse to humble ourselves before God, we too can experience God's judgment. 
This is not some book and some story written about someone a long time ago that really has no application for us. The reality is the question posed to Pharaoh can also be posed to us from God himself. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? And when you and I stand in our pride against God and his ways, we can experience the judgment of God as well. And his judgment can also be all those things. His judgment can come in such a way that it's smothering, that it's devouring. Sometimes you, in the middle of being, as a believer, disciplined, or maybe you're in rebellion and you feel the judgment of God and it it just feels like there's nowhere you can go. It's infiltrating every area of your life. You can't get away from it. It smothers you. It's taken everything from you. It's unprecedented. This has never happened before. It's ensnaring. Sometimes the judgment of God can be all those things, but here's a great lesson for us out of this. As God poses this question to Moses and to us, what we need to see is not that God is some cruel God sitting in a throne somewhere just dealing out judgment to us. As if he takes joy in the judgment, what we should see is that God in the giving of judgment here and now means to lead us away from hearing and finding and feeling and receiving judgment on that final day. That it is grace that when you and I are met with some type of judgment in the moment, it is meant to turn our eyes away from our rebellion and turn to him in humility to say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Judgment's not solely reserved for a single day. Judgment in the moment is meant to lead us to humility. And humility, in turn, leads us to the avoidance of judgment on the final day. We should thank God for this momentary judgment. Pharaoh never will. He'll, he'll never thank God for that. He never humbles himself. But he's given this opportunity. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Hear the question, church. Hear the question, friend. Turn while there is opportunity to turn. Humble yourself before the Lord and receive the mercy and grace that he extends to you. Not only does pride bring on the judgment of God, but it also, pride mistakes negotiation for surrender. Pride mistakes negotiation for surrender. In verses 8 through 11, Moses and Aaron brought back into Pharaoh. He said to them, go, serve the Lord your God. But which ones are going to go? It sounds as if for an instant, for a moment, that Pharaoh is finally capitulating and he's finally humbling himself before God and he's going to give in. But notice, he does not surrender himself to the demands of God, but instead he offers a hook with it. And he offers a, a, a line, a, a, a sentence in the, the fine print. Okay, you can go, but who's going to go exactly? He was willing to let them go so long as it was just the men. And the reason Pharaoh does this is a couple of reasons. He makes a couple of assumptions. One is, in, in that culture, in that day, he assumed that the women and children didn't really matter 
that they really had no, obli- no, no obligation to, to worship their God, and, and they were not involved in, in worship anyway, whether the gods of Egypt, and he assumed it would be true of the God of, of the Israelites. And so they didn't really matter anyway. So he said, go, go worship your God. And take only the men because they're the only ones who count anyway. And this is the assumption of Pharaoh, and let it be seen, let it be noticed by you, that it's the God of the Bible who steers away from this. It's the God of the Bible who values men, women, children, people of all ages. It's the God of the Bible who gives validity and value there. Later, all through, all through the Old Testament, as he's giving his, his rules for worship. It's, yes, the men have certain roles in worship, but the women are called to participate in worship as well. The children are called to be there as well. It's a family affair. The God of the Bible is the God who, who brings that. The second um, assumption that Pharaoh makes when he attempts to give this concession, if you will, let the men go, but the women and children will stay, is he believes that if the women and children are back here, then the men will have a reason to have to come back home. And he holds the women and children hostage, if you will, so that they will have to come back. But the response of Moses is brilliant. Moses is not creative on his own. He simply repeats to Pharaoh exactly what God has said from the beginning. When, Moses, or when Pharaoh asked the question, who exactly will go, Moses' answer can be summed up by saying, we all will. We're all going to go, and not only are we all going to go, all of our property will go with us as well. There's no adjustment. There's no negotiation. Moses is not going to haggle with Pharaoh because Moses is not in any position to haggle with Pharaoh. It's not Moses' demand that's, that's happening here. It's God's demand. Philip Graham Ryken in his commentary had this little sentence, and I thought it was good. He said, God doesn't discuss details. He dictates them. Humility before God is not negotiation. It is surrender. You may be here today, and you may be thinking, you know, I think I may try this Christianity thing, but God's going to have to understand some things. I'm not going to give up this, and I'm certainly not going to give up that. But if he can live with that, then I'll certainly give him a shot. The reality is, with all due respect, with all the love that I can muster and and speak to you with all the truth that, that is contained, that God has shared with us, that is not Christianity. Christianity is not, God, I'll come to you on my terms. Christianity is, God, you're my only hope. So, God, whatever I have to give up, God, lead me to give it up. Just save my soul. I've been struck the last two weeks as we've sang these songs. Last week, this idea of running our hellbound race. But God, in His grace, in His mercy, never allowing us to cross the finish line. Do you understand that? Left to yourself, we'd run right into hell. And God has stopped us and plucked us from that race. This line in the song that we sang today that, that our hell-bound home 
We, we, were, we were never allowed to move in. We were never allowed to fully pack the truck. Because God in his grace snatched us out of that darkness and showed us the, the void of light that would be there. He showed, he's shown us the light and the hope that is in him. Humility before God is not negotiation. Repentance before God is not negotiation. It is surrender. Third thing about pride is pride says God would never judge me. Verse 12, the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land and all that, uh, that the hell has left. It, it speaks here of an east wind. And sometimes when people reason, God would never judge me, they think, well, it's so improbable. It's so unlikely. God's not going to judge me. Do you know that this little detail in this text, it was highly improbable, highly unlikely for an east wind to be blowing. Predominantly, all the wind was always a westward wind. But God causes the the, the wind to blow in a different direction in order to bring locusts on the land. You may be saying, it's highly unlikely, it's improbable for God to, to bring judgment on me. And the reality is we forget that our God is in the improbable business. Those that were signing up to have an affair on Ashley Madison probably thought it was highly unlikely that they would ever be found out. The Numbers 32.23 says, be sure your sin will find you out. There will be people in this world that they will think it's highly unlikely that I will ever be found out, that I'll ever be caught. And they will be surprised one day when their sin is exposed before a watching world. But there will also be people who will seem to get away with it, who will live their entire lives, and they will never be outed to the public. It doesn't mean that Numbers 32 is wrong. It just means that the eyes of the watching world are not the eyes that really matter. That their sin is found out. My sin is found out. Yours is found out to God because God knows all. And you will not get away with it. It's not highly unlikely. It is in all, in all means, it's by all means very probable. In fact, it's certain that God will indeed bring judgment. In Exodus chapter 14, we'll learn in, in the next few weeks, Exodus 14 verse 21, this picture of God sending this east wind to bring these locusts on the land. In verse 21 of Exodus 14, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night, and all, all that were with Israel crossed over on dry land. This sending this east wind to bring the locusts is only foreshadowing how God would also then bring the Israelites out. Our God is in the probable business. Others say God would never judge me. They say, well, I've gotten away with it for so long. In verse 14 there, it says, such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been before, nor ever will be again. You say, I've gotten away with it so long, there's never been anything like this. It's never going to happen to me. 
It's not like Pharaoh holding the Israelites in slavery was a new thing. Why would God act now? See, what happens is we don't notice the kindness of God on an everyday basis, and we come to, as Romans 2 says, presume upon the kindness of our God. Third, some say, God would never judge me, and they say he obviously approves of what I'm doing. And look at my life. In verse 15, there's a reference there to all the the fruit of the trees in Egypt. And for so many years, Egypt had just been abundant with resources. The Nile flowing through Egypt and just the, the green nature of what would otherwise be a desert. It could have very easily come to say, God must must approve of what we're doing, but here's a statement I'd like for you to remember. Abundance does not equal approval. Abundance doesn't equal approval. Abundance sometimes is just common grace. Common grace meaning that it's grace that everyone gets to experience. Yesterday when Greg and Donald and I were playing golf and, and, and Donald, um, I, I got I to bring Donald in so I can feel better about my game a little bit, but I think Donald actually beat me. But uh, yesterday Donald hit one and it was going way, way, way out of bounds and way up over the trees and somehow it made it back out on the fairway. I have no idea how that happened. And Donald simply turned around and said, well, thank you, Lord, for that common grace. And the reality is, you and I experience common grace on an everyday basis. Grace of God, abundance of God does not equal his approval. It just speaks to his character. That he is a benevolent God. That all good things come down from the Father of lights. And two more. Pride mistakes impersonal half-hearted, sin-minimizing confession for repentance. Pride mistakes impersonal, half-hearted, sin-minimizing confession for repentance. Again, this looks good on the surface when we read in verse 16 that Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now, therefore, forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. This sounds Amazing! It sounds as if Pharaoh has finally come to his senses. He's, he's humbling himself. He's admitting his guilt. He's turning to God alone for salvation. We would, with someone like this, say, this is wonderful. Sign Pharaoh up. Put him on the church membership rolls. But if we look a little closer, as I went through this last week, the reality is his confession is impersonal, it's half-hearted, and it is sin-minimizing. It's impersonal in the fact that Pharaoh does not go to God personally. I was helped this week as uh, I came out of um, yet last week and Sunday morning, and I came out and that afternoon, that evening sometime, I received an email from Greg. And Greg was reading ahead and, and to the next plague, and he was just thinking through what God was doing in Exodus chapter 10. And Greg sent me an email, and one of the things he said was, Pharaoh goes to his spiritual broker, Moses, to have the pain stopped. This is rich with presumption, Greg said, and reveals that Pharaoh thinks Moses is sort of a diviner. He's some sort of spiritual mystic that can manipulate God with a word. 
See, Pharaoh doesn't know this God. He's in some ways agreeing with his statement that he made back in chapter 5. I don't know the Lord. Who's the Lord? He still doesn't know the Lord. He knows things about the Lord, but he does not know him personally. He doesn't go to him personally. He goes to Moses as a spiritual diviner, as a medium to go between him and his God. He's half-hearted. In verse 20, it says that he winds up not letting the men go. He doesn't let anybody go. He just stops it and shuts it down. He minimizes his sin there in verse 17, 16 and 17, by saying, forgive my sin, please, only this once. It's as if Pharaoh, we saw it last week, we see it again today. It's as if Pharaoh says, well, I've never sinned before, and I'm never going to sin again. So only this once, forgive me. And he's not coming to God saying, God, my heart is depraved. It is wicked. It's prone to wander. It's prone to rebel. It runs a hellbound race. God, I can't stop it. Please save me. Please keep me from crossing the finish line. Keep me from moving into the hellbound home that I so desperately want. Instead, Pharaoh doesn't do that. He says, well, only this once. Forgive me. Pride mistakes impersonal, half-hearted, sin-minimizing confession for repentance. And then lastly is this. Pride mistakes temporary mercy for permanent pardon. Pride mistakes temporary mercy for permanent pardon. Verses 18 and 19, he went out from Pharaoh, Moses did, and pleaded with the Lord, and the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt. Pharaoh looks at this and he sees this temporary mercy and he confuses it, mistakes it for permanent pardon. He sees the locusts taken away, the same east wind that blew them into his land. Now a west wind comes and blows them out. And he thinks, well, God is obviously not as powerful, not as angry as I thought he was. I'm still in charge. I still call the shots. What Pharaoh doesn't realize at this moment that is that just as the locusts and God sending this east wind to bring them onto the land is foreshadowing of God sending this east wind to lift the water and, and create dry ground for the Israelites to cross over on, he doesn't know the rest of that passage where God also then causes that water to fall again and causes all of Pharaoh's army to perish in the sea. 1428 says, The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. See, Pharaoh in this moment, in chapter 10, verses 18 and 19, thinks, Ha, I got away with it. He thinks this temporary mercy of God is permanent pardon but there is a chapter 14 coming. And just as there is a chapter 14 coming for Pharaoh, hear me. For the one who sits in his rebellion and refuses to humble himself before God, there is a chapter 14 coming for you as well. And it is not a joy for a preacher to stand up and tell you that. Because I know I know there's nothing that I can say or do to cause you to humble yourself. 
But I am warning you, and I am praying that God would, would, would humble you before it's too late. The book of Revelation warns of a time in the end when Satan will be let loose. And that Satan, as he always does, he copies and he mimics God because he wants to take away from God's glory. He will release a plague of his own, a plague of locusts that this time don't devour the land and the green vegetation, but this time attack and devour with a bite that's like the sting of a scorpion, the text says, all those who are not God's. I don't say that because I, I believe that, hey, this is something that we can rejoice in and, and we kind of can sit up here and look down on you. I say this to you as a friend, as, as, as a fellow human being, knowing that be it not for the grace of God that I would be headed for that chapter 14 too. But God in His mercy doesn't leave you with that chapter 14 coming without there being some way to avoid it. Just as Moses was sent by God to Pharaoh and asked the question, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Please hear the question from God today. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before him? I would encourage you, I would implore you to not go another minute in your own pride. I would beg you to humble yourself before the Lord. To surrender to his terms. His terms are coming to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. His terms are His Son, Jesus, Son of God, made human, living a perfect life, taking your place, receiving your punishment so that you might be forgiven and have life. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before God. Go to Him personally. Confess your sin and your sinfulness to Him. Not just this one time only sin, but go to God and say, God, I'm a sinner. I can't help myself. I'm running this race that I know is killing me. And by the grace of God, turn from that sin. You turn to God and receive grace. The Bible says, Romans 10, 13, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before God? Let's pray. God, I need humility. We in this place, all of us, need to be humbled. The pride wells up within us. Our hearts are desperately wicked. And left to ourselves, we will 
stand in our pride as proudly as we can. God, I pray, Lord, that you would shatter our pride. God, that in this place today, for all who are sitting here, God, that today that you would shatter our self-sufficient, self-sovereign pride. And that today, God, that we would stop with our negotiating. And God, that today we would surrender. And God, when we wake up tomorrow, that you would lead us to surrender. As we go through the day, that you would lead us to surrender. That you would shatter the pride within us. Teach us, God, that our only source of pride can be in you. And God, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to give you an opportunity to contemplate, to think about what's been said, what we read today as we just walked through the text. I want you to just begin to think about that question, how long will I refuse to humble myself before the Lord? And if today is the day that God snatches you out of your pride and says, today, humble yourself before me, and I would love to have a conversation with you. I'll be seated here at the front. I'd love for you to come and speak to me. I'll make you this promise. We'll do everything within our power to help you. We'll, we'll talk with you. We'll answer questions with you. We'll, we'll point you to good resources. Most of all, we're going to point you to the Lord. There's no shame in, in coming out of, of that pride place but there is judgment to come for those who remain there nobody in this room is going to ridicule you in fact the people in this room will rejoice with you there is rejoicing in heaven when a sinner repents and there is rejoicing in the pews when one repents as well If you're here today and you need someone just to pray with you, there will be people in the prayer room out these doors. Maybe you're here today and you want to talk about something else. Maybe just pray for you. You want to talk about how do you take the next step of joining this church or getting involved somehow. We'd love to talk with you. Whatever it is that God is calling you to, say yes to him. Let's respond in worship. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.